Take your Bibles, turn to Acts 17. Acts 17. If you were with us last week, we began this section, and uh, we're going to do our best to work through the rest of it this morning, and then we'll expand a little bit on part of it tonight in our evening service. We're looking at different gospel encounters in the New Testament, and uh, this one is an encounter with the the Apostle Paul. And uh, last week, just a quick review uh, for those that may not remember or weren't here, we were looking at Paul and his second missionary journey. And if you remember right, that second missionary journey was kind of a, a struggle from the start. In fact, I think the script went out the window right, off, right from the very beginning. Uh, divisive, a divisive beginning, there was closed doors, there was a dramatic change of direction. Uh, but in this story, we saw exciting conversions and intense persecutions and narrow escapes. In fact, The last two cities, Thessalonica and Berea, Paul basically escaped with his life. He had to leave early. They snuck him out of the city. Um, And it's after that last escape that the believers escort Paul to the city of Athens. And he finds himself there alone waiting for Silas and for Timothy to arrive in Athens with time on his hands. The text tells us that. Maybe I'm uh, putting a little bit into this. I I think there's no way around the fact that he's got to be exhausted Uh, Mentally worn out, physically worn out, emotionally drained. I mean, it's been a roller coaster of a trip so far. And so Paul's an all-in kind of guy, but you can only run at that pace for so long, and I'm guessing his tank is kind of getting empty. So here's the perfect opportunity for Paul to catch his breath a little bit. He's there. He's waiting. Slow down. Take a breather. And I, I think Paul was excited to be in Athens. Paul was a very educated man, and the culture of of Athens and being the intellectual center would have drawn him in. Uh, Paul had studied uh, Athens' history. I'm sure he knew its philosophy. He memorized its poetry, and we'll see that even in in our story today. So what a great opportunity for him to go around and check it out. Paul, for a little while, gets to be a sightseer. So he followed Paul through the city as he explored the Acropolis. And as he explored the Parthenon, uh, their incredible temples and gleaming monuments and marble statues, all the glitz and the glamour that Athens had to offer. Um, We walked with him through the Agora, the marketplace, where the hustle and bustle of daily life took place. And I'm sure that must have been a bit overwhelming to some who was seeing it for the first time. But the interesting thing is this, as we're looking in verse 16, he's experiencing this incredible city with all of its literature and art and philosophy and oratory, all all that it had to offer, and yet he's being more affected by something else than by the culture of the city. In verse 16, it says, His spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given over to idolatry. He's walking around the city, and he can't help but notice the fact that there's temples and idols and shrines everywhere he looks. In fact, it was a Roman satirist that said, if you were to walk down the street in Athens, you have a better chance of encountering a god than you would a man. God, little g. They were everywhere. And as Paul was looking at that, and as he was seeing this, his city wholly given over to idolatry, it broke his heart. He was moved. He was stirred to the depths of his soul by what these people were facing and how they were deceived. Here's a people that had risen to the pinnacle of human achievement. They were as high as they could get from a human perspective, but in reality, they were spiritually destitute. They were bankrupt. They were bound. They were blind. And it stirred his spirit within him. It's an intense word. It's where we get our English word paroxysm from. 
And we talked about that a little bit last week. He's deeply distressed and greatly troubled. There's this almost uncontrollable feeling of emotion that begins to well up within him as he's walking around and as he's seeing all this. And the stronger and stronger it gets, it leaves him with no choice but to act, but to do something. So we might say that he goes from tourist mode back to missionary mode. He goes from being a sightseer to becoming a soul seeker. He simply has to tell them about Jesus Christ. And so we see as we look in these verses in 17, therefore he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews, with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met him. He begins to go to the synagogue and reason with the Jews. He dialogues with whoever he can come across in the marketplace that's open to conversation. He's taking steps to act. Before long, he's debating with the philosophers there in the Agora in the marketplace, the Stoics and the Epicureans. And we don't know how long this goes on. We don't have a timeline here in the book of Acts, but he does it daily for a period of time, and it starts to bear fruit. These encounters are starting to do something. Curiosity is being aroused. By the way, curiosity is a wonderful thing when you're sharing the gospel with somebody. If you can get them hooked, if you can get them interested, and Paul was doing that. These individuals, it says later on in, in I think it's verse 21, that these, these people in Athens, they like nothing more than to hear some new thing. They were constantly wanting to hear something different. And Paul, what he was saying, it was different. They'd never heard it before. And so before too long, word of his teaching gets out, and the ruling body, the high court of Athens, hears about it, and they want to hear for themselves. And it's about to present the Apostle Paul with a fantastic opportunity. And we're going to call this an incredible invitation. Let's pick it up in verse 18. Certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what will this babbler say? We talked about that last week. That's not a term of endearment. <laughs> Others said he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. That was his message. And so they took him and brought him up unto the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, and we would know, therefore, what these things mean. Wow, what an opportunity. They take him, they bring him up to the Areopagus. It's located northwest of the city on a stone-covered hill. There's lots of history. We don't have time to delve into that here this morning. The name literally means Ares Rock. If you're familiar with your Greek mythology, how many of you studied that way back in school? <clears throat> some not so far back. For some, yeah, okay, that's good. Some of you guys were you know, your stone tablets that they chiseled it out on, and you're reading it that way. But um, Ares was the god of war. Do you remember that? Uh, that was, that's who he was. And then if you look at the Roman equivalent, Ares was Mars. If you look down in the passage a little bit, down to uh, verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. We have both names for this location mentioned in this passage. It's the same place. One's looking at it from a Greek vantage point, the other from a Roman vantage point. Um, so there's no, no issue there with the text. That's all it, that's all it is. But this Areopagus can refer either to the location or to the tribunal that's assembling there. Kind of like our Supreme Court. You could say, I'm standing before the Supreme Court, meaning the justices, or I'm going to the Supreme Court. We understand the difference. It'd be very similar here for uh, the Areopagus. Well, this group of individuals was a very celebrated tribunal. It was the most celebrated council of that day. They were world-renowned. Everybody knew about them. 
And they met at the sacred location to hold trials and to have debates and to discuss the important matters of the day, to issue rulings on different things. And so for Paul to be asked to come, be taken there, was quite an honor. But I can also guess that it was a little bit unsettling. I don't know that I'd want to stand in front of a Supreme Court and have to answer for what I've been saying. I'm sure it was a bit, of, a bit unsettling. He's asked to share his new doctrine, his new teaching. They wanted to know. They wanted to understand. Now, some would say, based on the wording of the passage, they think that maybe Paul was on trial because they took him to the Areopagus. I don't know that I see it that way because what's the next phrase? They ask a question, may we hear this new doctrine? I really think they're just, it's more of an informal gathering, not an official uh, legal type of a situation. They just want to hear him, and so they go to this location. You're teaching us a new doctrine. These things are strange to our ears. Jesus, the resurrection, we've not heard of these things before. Help us understand. Wow. I think this is one of the greatest opportunities in Paul's ministry so far, to present the gospel to the council in Athens. Could you imagine if an evangelist was called to the Supreme Court today and said, tell us the doctrine of Jesus? <laughs> that would never happen. But here it's happening in the city of Athens. We see Paul in a similar stage at the end of his life in Rome. I wonder what's going through his mind as he's walking from the city up to the Areopagus. And he's thinking, well, if you'd have given me a week to prepare, that would have been nice. <laughs> what's he thinking as he's walking up there? What am I going to do? I bet he's praying. God, help me find some way to make the gospel of Jesus Christ relatable to these people so they can understand it. God, they're lost in their sins. They've got every other God around, but they don't know you. God, help me to show them Jesus Christ. And as he's walking up there, God gives him the words to say, and we see, secondly, a masterful message. Let's pick it up in verse 22. Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, the Areopagus, and he said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you. This is profound. It's a great example of how to communicate the gospel to a people that don't understand the gospel. And I want to break it down for us as we work through this. He begins with a compliment, and then he establishes common ground. And then he explains in detail who God is, and then he concludes with a personal challenge that brought them to a point of decision. That's all here in these few verses that we're going to look at. Let's look at them a little bit closer. First of all, Paul begins with a compliment. I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Now, to our Western ears, it doesn't sound like a compliment. I mean, if you look at somebody who says, man, you're really superstitious, you're either making fun of them a little bit or you're kind of calling them out. Uh, we have superstitions. I probably shouldn't get into that too much. But, uh, Darren, when you played baseball, did you have any superstitions? <laughs> Things you did exactly the same way before a game or before you got up to bat. Um, I remember that when I was in high school playing football. Some kids, they had these superstitions that they did every game. Um, it, it can be that way. But here, that's not what Paul was saying. In their culture, what Paul said would very much be a compliment. Kind of like this. In every way, you are very religious. You guys take your religion very seriously. You guys are very, very devoted. And that was a true statement. Because everywhere he looked, they had idols and they had gods. And so I think Paul's too wise of a soul winner to insult his audience right out of the gate. He's giving them a compliment. 
He realizes they take pride in their religiosity, and so he begins by acknowledging that and doing it in a polite way. And this might be a good time to mention acknowledging and agreeing are two different things. Paul is not putting his stamp of approval on what they're doing. He's not even praising them for what they're doing. He's just acknowledging that they're doing it. Realizing they take pride in it, I'm going to mention this. I'm going to try to get my foot in the door in this conversation. And I think in doing so, he begins to win them over. He goes on and and now continues to establish common ground. I passed by and I beheld your devotions. I found an altar with his inscription to the unknown God. He's establishing common ground. Notice the words that he uses. It's kind of significant as you work through here. He says, I passed by. What's he saying? I spent some time in your city. I walked your streets. I saw the sights. I saw the different idols and the different temples and the different statues that were there. I I checked it out. And as I passed by, I beheld. And that word is more than just a casual glance. It's the idea that I looked closely. I looked with discernment. I tried to understand. I wanted to consider thoroughly and observe thoughtfully, not just a casual glance that might cause me to misunderstand what you're doing here. I wanted to know. I wanted to understand. He says, I passed by and I beheld your devotions. I don't know that that's the word I would have chosen. I think that might be a little too diplomatic. (laughs) Your devotions, what is he talking about? He's talking about their idols. He's talking about the things that they're worshiping, their their, their false worship. And he begins by not denigrating their false worship. I mean, what could he have said? Remember, he was stirred to the depths of his heart by their idolatry. I mean, I walked around the city and all I saw was a bunch of dumb idols. (laughs) That's a true statement, but it's probably not the best way to say it if you're trying to get your foot in the door and witness to somebody. Man, everything I see is just stone and, and, and brick and made out of wood, and there's no life to it, and it's worthless. All those things are true, but we don't always have to say everything that's true. And so Paul is, is using this word here. He doesn't denigrate their false worship. He doesn't make fun of their idols. He doesn't pull an Elijah on Mount Carmel type of a situation. Remember that story? When the false prophets of Baal are trying to call down fire from heaven, and Elijah's like, holler a little louder, maybe they're sleeping, right? Remember the story? And he's having a little bit of fun with them. That's a whole different situation. And I'm not saying Elijah was wrong to do that. That called for that at that time. But that wouldn't have been a good fit where Paul was here, where he's at. And it's not a good fit for us when we're witnessing to people. It's interesting, he doesn't return the favor. What did they call him earlier in the passage? A babbler. Paul could have taken a time here and poked back just a little bit. But he's more concerned about them seeing Jesus Christ than what they are concerned about him. What a wonderful thought. He shows in his language that he's taken interest in them and in their city. He he spent time trying to understand who they were and what they believed and what made them tick. He showed genuine interest. And that's clear in the language as you work through the passage. But here we move on. Uh, Let us see. We see Paul doing something amazing. He now segues to the gospel. What's a segue? And don't say a two-wheel motorized scooter. That's not what we're talking about. What's a segue? It's a transition. It's a smooth transition. He takes these, this idol that he's talking about, and now he turns that and pivots and uses that to present Jesus Christ. I saw this altar to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly or unknowingly worship. Him declare I unto you. What a wonderful transition. What a beautiful segue. And he clearly points them now to the God of the Bible. It's a masterful way of taking something from their everyday life and using it as a springboard to the gospel. 
If you get one thing out of our message today, this is the point I want us to see. Find ways to use everyday life situations to springboard to the gospel. If we can develop that skill, it'll go a long way in helping us with our everyday conversations with people and trying to point them to Christ. Now, Paul did it masterfully here for us in this story. And then we see that he now clearly proclaims who God is, the living and true God. And that's the bulk of his message. Pick it up in verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needs anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things. And he's made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell in all the face of the earth. He's determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him. This God can be sought after. This God can be found. You can know him. He's not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold and silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the time of this ignorance, that's a nod back to verse 23, whom you ignorantly worship, the time of of this ignorance when you didn't know, God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. (laughs) Wow, what a message. And by the way, this is bullet points. I mean, Paul preached a message. I read that in, what, two and a half minutes. I think Paul's message there before the Areopagus was longer than that. There was a lot more developed here. And if you guys ever find a copy, a transcript of that sermon somewhere, let me know. I would really like to see that. What an incredible presentation of the God of the universe. He starts out by saying, God is your creator. He made the world. He made everything in it. He made the world. That means he made you. He is your creator as well. He's Lord over heaven and earth. Kyrios is the word. He's the Lord, the master, the ruler. You are accountable to him. And if he reigns over heaven, that means he's superior to every single one of your gods that you worship. And if he reigns over earth, that means he's also reigning over you. That's what he's bringing out here right at the beginning. There's something that I kind of miss. We don't see it in our English language here, in our English Bible. But in verse 24, that first word, God, it is using the definite article. It's not just there's a God out there that's this way. It is the God. The one and only God. He attacks their polytheism right away in his very first word as he gets into his message. But this God not only created the world, he also sustains it. He's a God that's caring and loving and personal. He doesn't dwell in temples made of hands. He doesn't need your worship, your acts of service. He doesn't need your food and drink offerings to survive. It's the other way around. You need him to survive. God doesn't need you. And he goes and he begins to explain this to them. He says he gives you life. He gives you breath. He gives you all things. The very air that you're breathing right now is his air. The the crops that you're getting from the soil, it's his soil. He's providing all of these for you. You're using his resources. God doesn't need you. You need him. He again says a nod to creation. He created of one man, of one blood. Uh, We're all made of the same stuff. We're all made in the image of God. As you go on through the passage, we see next he points out his sovereignty. 
his sovereignty. He hath made of one blood all nations for men for to dwell on the face of the earth. And notice the next phrase. He hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitations. He has determined. He has appointed. He created you and sustains you. But he also tells you where you can go and where you can't. But I love this next phrase. It shows that our God is knowable. That they that seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. This God is incredibly powerful, he's, but he's a good God, and he wants you to know him. He wants to have a relationship with you, a personal, reciprocal relationship with you. He wants you to find him. Wow. goes on and talks about the fact that we are God's offspring. He is our father, not in a spiritual sense. We know that comes by faith through Jesus Christ. But in a natural sense, through the idea of creation, God made Adam, and as the creator of Adam, he's indeed the father of all of us. And he begins to quote their poets, Epimenides and Eratus and Cleanthus. He quotes them in this message. And he says, since we're the offspring of God, it doesn't make sense that we could create something that then would become God. That doesn't make any sense. So the gods that you're worshiping can't be true gods. Not if the God of the, of the Bible created everything. He goes on to say that this God is a God of mercy. Verse 30, I had to ponder this one for a while, and I, I'm still thinking about it. It says, at the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. God was patient in your ignorance. It's not that God was somehow condoning what they were doing, or giving them a past, the idea of winked at means to overlook, to look past. God would have been completely justified if he would have punished them for their sins of idolatry on the spot. But God's a merciful God. And he opened up this window of mercy and extended the time so that they could come to repentance. And so this merciful God now commands them to repent, to turn from their idol worship to the true and living God who made them and sustains them. That's his argument. That's his flow of thought as he's working through here. And he goes, there's a reason for this. <laughs> there's a reason that you're going to need to repent. Notice what he says next. Because he hath appointed a day in his sovereignty. There's a day appointed, and there's a person ordained, and he's a judge. And he's going to judge the world, and he's going to judge you. And that would have, that would have been impactful for these individuals who are judges at the Areopagus. Because they, they had judged many people. Their fate had been in their hands many, many times. It says, you judge others here at this court. One day God is going to judge you. And there'll be no pardons. There'll be no exceptions. He will judge in righteousness. That day has been appointed. And the judge has been ordained. And who is that judge? It's the same Jesus that I'm telling you about. This one who's a good God, a strong God, a, a, a sovereign God. He came to this earth and he lived a perfect life. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin, and someday you're going to be judged by that standard. And the proof of all this, here's the capstone of his, of his whole argument. Here's the proof that all of this that I'm saying is true. The proof of all of this is that God raised him from the dead. It's the resurrection. The resurrection validates this claim, and he says, Repent of your sinful idolatry and turn to Jesus Christ. And you can kind of picture him as he's preaching this message, and he gets to that point, and here's the irony. It was the topic of the resurrection that got them curious, that brought them in, that wanted them to hear more about what Paul had to say, but it's the same exact topic that now brings the sermon to an abrupt end. 
They cut him off just like that. He mentions the resurrection of the dead. They cut him off. And it says in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we'll hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. The sermon was over at that point. But I want you to notice their responses here as we wrap this up. It was a mixed response. I read verse 32, they heard of the resurrection of the dead. Some mocked. There were some people that didn't take it seriously. The word means to sneer or to jeer or to make fun of. It's not out of question that they actually burst out laughing as he's talking about this. How would that go over for you if you're witnessing to somebody and they just burst out laughing and say, that's ridiculous. That happened to Paul here. There was a group of people, the ones that were seeing him as a babbler remained unchanged. Their hearts were still hardened towards God. Some of them, though, delayed. Notice what it says. We will hear thee again of this matter. If you've got a person that doesn't know Jesus and doesn't know anything about Jesus Christ, that's steeped in idolatry like these people were, it's going to take time. Be patient with them. It may not be the first time they hear the gospel. How many of us trusted Christ the first time we heard the gospel? Be patient with them. Come back and visit it again. Get them curious. Bring them back into the discussion more often later on. It takes time. Learn to be patient. But look at at verse 34. How be it? Certain men cleaved unto him and believed among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Did you catch that? One of the members of their Supreme Court trusted Jesus Christ after that message. Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, he trusted Christ. That's an amazing thing. Could you imagine what that took on his part? We don't know this for sure, but tradition tells us that he later became a pastor of the church there in Athens and that he was the first martyr. We don't know if that's true or not. It's likely. Um, Interesting to think about that. But he trusts Christ. Also a woman by the name of Damaris. A woman was there just listening in. And the Spirit of God worked in her heart as Paul was preaching, and she said, I want what you're saying. I accept Jesus as my Savior. And then it says others who were not named in this passage. I've heard people say that Paul in Athens wasn't successful. I would beg to differ. (laughs) I think the fact that he had any converts at all was an amazing thing, a testament to the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. But what a masterful presentation of the gospel, beginning with something positive, finding a way to compliment them, and then finding common ground. And then using that common ground to segue, to pivot to the gospel. And then proclaiming Jesus Christ the way he proclaimed him. His crucifixion and his resurrection from creation to consummation. It's all there in this short little message. And then bringing them to a point of decision. This man, Jesus, is a judge. And one day you will stand before him. Are you ready? What a beautiful presentation of the gospel. And I flew through that. I didn't even cover half of what's in my notes, and I've got more tonight that I want to share because there's just too much there. But does that help get us the big picture as we're looking through this passage? Folks, as, I, as I'm trying to think how to wrap this up, Paul took time in Athens to understand these people. He didn't have a hatred for the people because of their horrible idolatry. And sometimes we can see people in the wickedness of their sin, and we can attach that sin to them. Paul saw past that. He saw the soul. He had compassion just like Jesus did. And the Bible says as he was working through, his heart was stirred within him. 
I think we need to ask God to burden our hearts for the lost. So that as we drive through Columbia Falls and Kalispell in our area here, we see the lost the way Jesus did and the way Paul did. We need to ask God to help us see as he saw and to feel as he felt and then to have that same compulsion to step out and act, to open our mouths and say something. Oh, God, burden our hearts that we might more clearly present the gospel to those around us. Father, I thank you for this passage. Father, there's so much truth here. We just can't, we can't digest it all in one shot. I pray, Father, that what we've heard today will impact us. God, burden my heart for the lost. Burden our hearts for the lost in this community. Help us to personalize that to individuals that we know and that we care about. Father, there's a little song that we sing, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. God, I pray that you would do that for us. I pray, Father, that we would learn from Paul's example of how to take just common, everyday, ordinary things and use that to segue and transition to the gospel. Father, he thought about this. He prayed about this, and you gave him that illustration, and you'll do the same for us. Father, I pray that you would burden us so much that we can't keep our mouths shut, just like Paul. We had to get to the point where we open our mouths. Father, give us specific people that we can share Christ with. Give us the boldness to do it, the confidence in your Holy Spirit to take that step of faith. And God will thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.